hitting record and drinking this tea. Hoping my throat will cooperate while being sick through this episode. Fingers crossed. Hello, and welcome to Foss and Crafts, a podcast about free software, free culture, and making things together. With my co host Morgan and my co host Christine. Well, what are we talking about today? Today we're talking about Blender, and if you go through our archives, you'll see that we've talked about Blender quite a few times. One of our very first interviews was with someone who worked on a early Blender open movie project, and several Blender open movie projects, in fact. We had on Sophie Jantak talking about her workflow using Blender's Grease Pencil, and in our governance episode, we talked a little bit about the governance structure of the Blender project. But today we're going to talk a little bit more about Blender overall. Mm-hmm. So what is Blender? I mean, Blender is a little bit of everything. It's like when it comes to graphics, that is. It's kind of a graphics powerhouse traditionally, originally for 3D graphics, but recently also for 2D graphics. Also, sorry for the way that my voice sounds because I'm kind of sick today on this episode, but we're still recording anyway because excited about Blender and also excited about the podcast. But anyway, Blender can do a lot of things when it comes to graphical technology. Um, As said, primarily known for 3D stuff, but... Um, As we'll kind of get into, you know, many categories of graphical things that you might want to do, you can do with Blender. And it is a free software project Mm -hmm. overall. And it also has this connected free culture uh, open movie project uh, arm as well. Right. Because uh, Blender, well, I guess now Blender Studio, previously Blender Institute did this part of it, but uh, the Blender Studio does these open movie projects uh, in collaboration with programmers. And I guess we'll get a little bit more into that later on in the episode, but... But yes, it's Blender's interesting because it's it's not just a piece of software, but it's a, a software that is very much so owns being part of cultural production. So I guess very fast and crafts. Yeah, it's one of it's one of the few things that is free software and free culture working so seamlessly together, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like at its core. Mm-hmm. So what can Blender do? I kind of already said a little bit that Blender, you know, it's. It's known for 3D stuff with 3D modeling, texturing, rigging, and animation. Those are kind of its bread and butter, right? You know, if you want to make 3D graphics scenes, um, you want to make characters for a video game, you want to rig those characters so that they can move around and make an animation for them, you want to put texture them so that they look pretty, you know, and put some uh, some some nice, uh, you know... I don't know, well, textures on them. Uh, you can do it in Blender, and you can then animate characters... Um, In 3D, and that's kind of like really where um, it kind of has its origin. Um, uh, Additionally, one of the other pieces that was part of its origin that's kind of gotten cut, um, but it's kind of interactivity is coming back, is its game engine. Uh, It used to be known for having this game engine, but it really wasn't widely used. And I think Godot is kind of being used more for that these days. But anyway, it has three different, sorry, it has two different primary rendering engines that are used for for if you wanted to render your scene, your individual shots or your your animation, there's Eevee, which is real time and fairly fast and looks quite nice. And then there's Cycles, which is a slower ray tracing render. 
which is able to get a lot more details with reflections and like a lot of kind of like natural environment type things that are, are harder to do in kind of the fast path. Um, but I said Blender can do a lot and it can. So it can also do post-production. So after you render your image, be able to like adjust, you know, the curves of the lighting, you know, being able to handle things like that. Um, it can, you can also do sculpting in it. So you can kind of sculpt more kind of like clay objects. You can do video editing in it. Um, it's very scriptable. It has a Python interface for scripting. And in fact, the whole interface kind of shows off what scripting it is like. If you turn on this feature, it'll show you the Python equivalents of everything you do. Um, and you can do 2D artwork, as we mentioned, you know, the, the Sophie Jantek episode. Um, you can do 2D artwork increasingly with Blender using its grease pencil tool. And then kind of the, the final thing, even though it's not the only things you can do that'll highlight, is that you can also do procedural um, artwork using geometry nodes. Oh, I guess you can also do simulations too, like physics simulations. I, I never use that part of Blender, but um, it is pretty cool that it has it. Yeah, there's some really interesting work happening in, in that. Yeah, in that category. Yep. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the history of Blender. Mm-hmm. Well, um, so admittedly, some of this I'm pulling from Blender's website, but some of it's also from me following Blender's stuff for a long time. So, How long have you been part of the Blender community, Christine? Well, I've, I guess I've been using it since 2002 or three, which is right around when Blender got open sourced, actually. And I remember opening it up before that, um, the first time I ever ran a, um, uh, let's say, a Linux-E system, a GNU Linux-E system. I, it was one of the programs I tried opening up that was uh, just installed on this as like a, some trial software. And it was pretty cool to see. Um, I think I ended up opening up this TIE Fighter graphic that I ended up rotating around. And I was like, whoa, this is cool. I have no idea what I'm doing. Around 2002 or three, I started getting really into it when I was in college. I actually got very excited and spent a lot of time on the forums in um, in college, like looking at everything. And I'm kind of jumping ahead of myself in terms of that, because this is not the personal history uh, side of things, but it's kind of hard for me to not nerd out about it. But um, I guess I've been looking at things since around when it was open sourced. So it was open sourced. I guess we'll, we'll we'll move backwards and forwards in time. It was open sourced in 2002, but it has some prehistory to that. What state did Blender exist before it was open sourced? The birthday of Blender is considered to be, I think it's January 2nd, 1994. So we just hit the 30 year anniversary of Blender. Um, technically, though... Um, there were actually some, some of that code actually borrowed from some previous in-house tools. So Blender was originally founded by Ton Rusendahl um, at uh, his uh, startup Neo Geo. It's like an art production company. Um, and he was a, uh, he dropped out of uh, industrial design, uh, if I remember correctly. Um, and he was a self-taught software developer and started this design company in the Netherlands. They built kind of their own in-house tools to be able to let the developer, the artist, kind of move very quickly on client designs. And then kind of this rewrite started in 1994, this kind of this new foundation that got called Blender. Eventually, Neo Geo shuts down. And in 1998, uh, Tan and uh, Frank Von Beek, I think, they started a company called Not A Number, which is very funny and a floating point math kind of way. 
they basically decided to make Blender kind of shareware slash freeware there. You could like get it no cost and unlock some more features if you paid for it. And then they had this game engine that they were really excited about for kind of these virtual, like, oh, we're going to do these virtual world type things and everything. And there was this video that was released um, that you can still see online that was called Did It Done It that shows off some of the work at Neo Geo and then um, I think later at Not A Number. And, and and that kind of stuff is really cool to look at. But um, but what happened in 2002 is that there was, a you know, the dot-com crash had happened and was kind of going on for a while and, and Not A Number wasn't able to continue anymore. And so um, basically that company went bankrupt and Ton Rusendahl basically in response opens a nonprofit and says, hey... Um, how about we release this as open source? We can give the investors back some money, not nearly as much as you put in, but like some money enough to make you feel like you got something out of it, mm-hmm. something back. Um, and it's not just a complete loss of the software yeah. and all of this work. So basically just buying the software specifically, I mean, kind of for a pittance compared to, I'm sure, what the de- uh, investors had put in. But um, but it was actually a lot of money to raise then. It was kind of the internet's first online crowdfunding campaign which is significant on its own yeah 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 so like there i don't know of any other crowdfunding campaign happening like this but it was a free blunder campaign and in seven weeks they raised one hundred ten thousand euros which was is now equivalent to 175,000 euros roughly um and that keep in mind that happened at a time before kickstarter before you know anything like that and in the middle or right after the dot-com crash too so yeah yeah so that was pretty big so blender then gets released under the gpl and continues with you know some a bunch of open source contributions this is around the time where i'm like reading the blender forms heavily in college Um, and in 2005 a really exciting thing happened which was project orange that was the first Blender open movie project, which then gets released as Elephant's Dream. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, again, we'll point back in the podcast history if you want to listen to an interview with the director of that. So Project Orange was really exciting because it was the first time that you had artists and developers working right next to one another. Yeah, and that's a really interesting workflow that Blender has going for it, too, because as for the open source and free culture interplay, you have this uh, kind of like community feedback loop, right? Where you have the developers that are able to create the software and then you have a readily available uh, community of artists who are ready to both break it and say, hey, this is what we need. Let's yeah. make it. And for a very specific project, too, right? Like yeah. a team of artists working together on trying to deliver something. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think that in many ways that that design of having the artists and developers sit next to each other is very... My understanding is that it was very influenced by Tun and Frank and other people who were at Not A Number and, um, and Neo Geo. Um, which, again, that company has nothing to do with the game console that came out later, by the way. Um, they, uh, um, the, their experience of having, you know, being a design firm that had artists and developers working next to each other. And my impression is that the, basically Tun had some conversations with, uh, some other people who had worked at Not A Number and they're basically like, what should we do to advance things? And 
kind of came up with this idea of the open movie project. Mm -hmm. And, and so Elephant's Dream came out and it was really cool, really amazing and really surreal and kind of laid the foundation for a bunch of features that ends up, you know, kind of appearing all throughout the rest of uh, Blender. And in some ways, I, I mean, Elephant's Dream is one of my favorites of the Blender open movie projects. Uh, some some people think that it's kind of really strange, and it <laughs> is, which is one of the nice things about it, I think. Um, it's and, intentionally strange, though. It's not like, well, that came out weird. It's, I mean, yeah, I mean, like it's it's it it ha it's it's very you know it's very surreal, and it's it's um it, it it's kind of both a combination of it being um experimentalism in terms of it being the first thing being made this way, but also um. I think kind of moving for a little bit of a cerebral, you know, kind of like um, plot arc, which I think mm -hmm. has been difficult for some people to, you know, like it's not it's not always readily accessible to everybody. Like, what what is this? It takes a few times watching through. Yeah. But but that's kind of rambling. You know, one of the things that happened is that um, in 2007, the Blender Institute got uh, founded, which had tried to do more of these types of things. And in 2008... Two big things happened. Uh, big Bug Bunny got released, which was the second big Blender open movie project. Which went a different direction as far as that kind of cerebral, like... Completely <laughs> the opposite, right? You know, it was furry and funny, like, you know, kind of the type of thing that, you know, is very popular for, like, CG movies and stuff like that. And it's, you know, it had some bite to it in some ways, but it ended up being a... It... it it, I mean, like, all these Blender open movie projects released some cool tools kind of alongside of them. Like, this one pushed the, the fur and hair system a bunch. Mm -hmm. But also, it ended up being very accessible in a way that, like, um, you end up seeing still today in lots of example, like, pictures even from big companies. And they're showing off their television and stuff like that. They have an ad for it. They still put Big Buck Bunny, um, like, stills. Mm -hmm. in those pictures and also like little clips of it so um it, i think in in some ways it was really useful to do something that kind of went in the opposite direction even though i'm very fond personally of elephant's dream and like there's been a very kind of like a, a big s scattering of things across future blender open movie projects they're all pretty different but the other big thing that happened in 2008 was blender 2.5 was released which was like the a big overhaul of the ui and um, an even bigger overhaul of the UI in some ways. Well, it was kind of a refinement of that, but also like a, a rethinking of how to make things more accessible. Is that in 2019, I think, the Blender 2.8 comes out. And I think this is kind of the turning point where I, after 2.8, um, is when I really started to see people starting to like kind of recognize Blender outside of the air quotes hobbyist community that it had a reputation for. Yeah. And now Blender is used, like, much more broadly than it yeah. used to be. I think if you are starting a new video game company, for example, if like, if you are an indie animator or an indie game producer, you're almost certainly using Blender. Like, it's the default these days for such things. There's a bunch of big companies that still have large productions where they're still using other tools. But like we watched that video about the 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 um the second Spider Verse movie, and yeah. they they used grease pencil in it, right? Mm -hmm. And and so they kind of I think that was one of the big first times we saw really like a, a huge production kind of insert Blender in a very visible way into its pipeline. It's using grease pencil for a lot of the line art, 
that's in that movie. But I think one of the other big differences that's happened between now when I was learning it and then is that like the prominence of internet video with YouTube and et cetera, it's much easier to find resources about how to learn things. And with Blender being open source, it's much easier for people to default to. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, we that was kind of a tour of the history. So nowadays, I think there's about three institutions that formerly are doing the development of Blender um, and stuff, basically. Um, there is the Blender Foundation, which holds on to the code and the trademark and stuff. The Blender Institute, which is, I think, mostly where the software is being developed these days and other projects like that. And then there's the Blender Studio, which is the ones doing the open movie project stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and those latter two tend to be funded by the Dev Fund for more of the software side and the Blender Cloud for the, the open movie project side of things. We talked about this in the governance episode about how kind of all three of these things come together. Yeah, and how and how having the three separate things allows it to, like, they have somewhat of a shared pot of money, but that also allows them to have, like, different governance setups for the different focuses. Mm-hmm. Where are we going next? So next we're going to modern application. And we talked a little bit about how Blender moved from largely the hobbyist community to something that's being used more and more in like larger uh kind of like industry experiences so let's talk a little bit more about how blender is being used these days so i think i think just my my general commentary on that is just that blender is really just being used very widely and very much so as a default in many different spaces that are not coming in with their pre-existing pipeline. Like, every person I know who does independent game development and who has, you know, started their studio, sit, you know, in recent times, Blender is a the default. They're going to be using Blender. And that's not just the sample bias in that most of the people you know doing independent games are free software or open source people. I There is some sample bias there. There's some sample bias, but I also happen to have quite a few people in my life who are involved in the game industry and like Mm -hmm. this is my impression from talking to them is that if you are in kind of non-triple-a game environments you're going to be using blender yeah um and uh we're starting to see more 2d animation studios picking up blender because grease pencil is really powerful um since it allows for the combination of 2d and 3d intermixed um it really allows for things... I think Grease Pencil is one of those things that really feels like it's a thing that other things kind of really couldn't do before in some ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think part of part of the reason for this more broad adoption is uh, has to do with the GUI and usability of it. Mm-hmm. So Blender 10 or 15 years ago was a different ex- user experience than Blender today. So That's I... Right. My experience actually using Blender is fairly limited. I will admit that, like, my own 3D animation experience or 3D modeling experience alone is limited, and my experience using Blender is limited. It was mostly um, in the class that you took, right? Yeah, so I've taken a couple of 3D 3D modeling classes, uh, and, well, both of those classes we used software that I didn't really like. One of them we used Strata, which was industry standard for jewelry making and nothing else. And it was terrible. And Christine 
was like, let me show you how I would do this in Blender for something that I couldn't figure out in Strata. And then I kind of backtracked how to do it uh, in Strata. And then the other one was using Rhino, which was at that point the kind of industry standard for like... Was that for modeling, I think? I forget. Yeah, I, I think it was just kind of the industry standard of like generic 3D modeling. I don't remember that much about Rhino, but yeah, I do remember that it was a big deal for quite a while and it seems to be less of a big deal than it once was. Yeah, so like when I was taking both of those class, each of those classes, and those classes were about like seven or eight years apart in different uh, universities with different focuses, I, I did a little bit of Blender and like even in those seven or eight years, the graphic interface for Blender like drastically improved because that first time was probably around 2006 or 2007 and at that point the blender uh user interface was mostly geared towards people who were in the free and open source software communities i mean that was before blender 2.5 even yeah blender 2.5 so was, was like the big first the first big ui overhaul yeah so like if you didn't know like how to use the command line using Blender was rough at that point. <laughs> I mean, yeah, no, it was definitely rough. And then in, what, 2012, 2013, or whenever I was taking that... Oh, sorry. Oh, yeah, go ahead. That when I was taking that second class, it, it was, like, much easier to use. And then now, looking at the Blender user interface, like, they've just consistently put a lot of work on improving that GUI so that it's no longer a, you kind of have to like RTFM in order to yeah. be able to figure it out. Yes, I agree with that. It's also, there's, there was a bunch of research that was put into the Blender 2.8 user interface to be able to figure out how to make things a lot cleaner and better. And there's a whole team that was like really focused on it. And I think Pablo Vaquez, who Venom GFX, who is is like now actively very still involved um, in doing Blender user interface design stuff, and I know there are other people also. Back in the day, when I would try to get things done in Blender initially, you just had to be like, there were there was a manual, and it didn't. It was huge, and it didn't have all the things you needed to know to be able to do things. And you needed to know the keyboard. Uh, shortcuts and you needed to know the keyboard shortcuts and then um later on like when i was trying to do other projects it it really required it really required knowing people who happen to know an ins a bunch of insider tricks and that's different now especially the prominence of internet video means it's very easy to just search for a topic and somebody's got some video that walks you through how to do it yeah um so so the usability of blender ha and the the usability of the interface is like so much more accessible these days now we should say that blender that all 3d software that is sufficiently um advanced enough for artists to get interesting things done with these days at least um tends to have a high learning curve and blender oh, is yeah. no exception right it's just like one of those things that you know there's a high learning curve right you know there's well and i just talked about how much i hated the two uh pieces of software i was using in those classes too right which were the software that they chose for like fairly introductory courses <laughs> right and I think that there was a certain amount of threshold stuff where people, when Blender had much less adoption, 
people would come in from like Maya or Max or whatever, and they, they would have invested themselves in it, possibly with a large amount of money. And then they experience Blender, which has a very different set of um, user interface details, and they would feel very turned off by it because, you know, it wasn't what was immediately familiar. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, A, Blender's tried to streamline some of its aspects a little bit, um, but as B, there's a certain amount of momentum that when something kind of crosses a threshold of the number of people using it, it becomes much more likely that, like, it, it's it's not just, it's the hard thing because it's sometimes people's first experience, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we, we were talking about how it's kind of being used more broadly and that it's grown in popularity, you know, and it's increasingly being used by a number of 2D animation groups, especially because many pro- many 2D animation things now combine 2D and 3D and Blender does that. This one I feel like is, is not even that smug to say. Nothing combines 2D and 3D currently as well as Blender does and it mm-hmm. will get better as Grease Pencil 3 comes out. Um, and so... That's pretty exciting. Um, but, I mean, kind of Blender is used for, like, so many different things. You and I were watching, like, we spent a couple nights just watching random videos from, like, the Blender conference, right? And, yeah. like, there were some different things, like, that that it was being used for that weren't just traditional animation, etc. Yeah, if, if you want to go down a very interesting rabbit hole, just look at some of the videos from Blender Conference to look at the wide variety of things that people are doing with this software because it varies quite a bit. Well, let's highlight one of them. Yeah, there was one video in particular, which as a historian I found really interesting, um, that was by a human rights group that uses community crowdsourced resources to do reconstructions of things for human rights uh, purposes. So like disasters and fires and things like this where people are trying to figure out how things happened. So they're doing this kind of like community-led investigation and taking all of these like cell phone photos and videos that people are just taking as they're like fleeing or uh, observing from a safe distance And then using Blender to kind of, like, compile all of these into ways to reconstruct what happened. And as a historian, I find this fascinating because we tend to have very small amounts of information that we try and reconstruct the past from because what survives is what survives. Um, So this idea of kind of, like, community crowdsourced uh, investigations is really interesting to me. So, like... The ways that you can use this software to compile things is interesting. Yeah, just adding a little bit to that one, I, what I thought was interesting is that they would actually, like, they used so many parts of Blender. So, you, yeah, it was crowdsourced from a bunch of different sources from different people, but they have, like, dedicated staff mm-hmm. using the software, and they're doing 3D modeling of the city and the environment, and then, like, actually projecting the videos at different angles so you can see that it lines up in every angle, and even using things like the smoke simulation tools and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, to see how, uh, so using video, the combination of the videos plus like simulations to see how like smoke would spread and the rapidity and things like that. Yeah. It, it's really interesting. We will link that video in the show notes. Yep. So now we're going to talk a little bit about Christine's personal experience with Blender. So 
We talked about your early lurking days on the Blender forums when you were in college, but at that point you weren't really creating much on Blender, right? So what was when did you really get into making things in Blender? Well, I was trying to create things in Blender, but struggling. Basically, like some between, I think about 2003 and 2004, I was reading the forums heavily. I had the manual and I would keep opening it and trying to make things and kind of struggling to get anything done. And then, um, you know, like, kept kind of making little bits and pieces of things. Um, and, and like, I, I made some characters. I made some, like, you know, s- small animation tests and stuff like that. I didn't really do anything. But, like, just to give a view of what it felt like at that time to use it, like, um, like I remember at the beginning there was this tutorial. Nowadays... Like, the most popular tutorial is this donut tutorial by this person who calls themselves Blender Guru, um, who, and it's not the official Blender tutorial, but it's very popular, right? Um, and, um, but, like, way back in the day, there was this tutorial for something called Gus, and Gus was a gingerbread man, and it was a great tutorial because you could do it in, like, five minutes, and it taught you everything wrong. Like, it was really great because you learned, you learned how to do a bunch of things, and then you kind of did not know how to apply those skills to anything else. Um, but it felt cool because you started, you had like this, you know, suddenly I felt like I could do something Mm -hmm. in 3d space. Um, but like, it was hard to make progress. I made very small things and really didn't understand them. Blender's interface was very difficult. All the animation tools were extremely difficult and not really ready until elephant's dream happened. Um, and then during the, um, the media, first media goblin campaign was the first time that I really did anything serious. That was like, I made during the well the two campaigns. I made these two videos, and they were both animated. And I got help, um, you know, from our friend who we will link to their episode again. You know about um, how to be able to help me when I got stuck with things, and also ideas for how I might do things visually. Um, and I it was so much fun. And then I kind of just dropped blender for about a decade and the reason was not because i wanted to drop blender but because i kept using computers with hardware that was incompatible with blender either because there was a graphics card bug or because i was using something that was trying way too hardcore to be like a free software purist so this is your free software interfering with your free software yeah, it's my free software interfering with my ability to be a free culture artist. Yeah. Because while Blender is free software, as we've said multiple times, it is still a 3D graphics program. So it requires graphics capabilities. Requir- which, for a long time, has been hard to do using free open source software drivers. But these days, the most recent Intel chips are actually have fantastic graphics card drivers they might not be as fast as the two other big mainstream ones but you can actually get a recent chip and actually have really wonderful graphics uh drivers that like you can do cool things in blender with Mm -hmm. but the thing that pulled me back into blender was grease pencil like discovering grease pencil and it's used for 2d and everything like that i was like i have to try this and I managed to get Blender open enough, even though it would completely crash and hang my computer, enough to do some tests in Grease Pencil, where I was like, I got to get a whole new computer that can be capable of doing Grease Pencil. And so I did. And then that's that's really when I started getting back into Blender again. Um, yeah. 
Do you want to talk about any of those smaller grease pencil projects, or do you I, think that's sufficient? Yeah, I can link to... I, I did a bunch of little tiny grease pencil animation tests. Like, I think they were really cute. And then I did one for our anniversary, actually, for our 14th anniversary. That was many little tiny animations compiled into, like, a little animated postcard. Yeah. It was adorable. And then I... Uh, and I'm, I'm planning on uh, doing some more in grease pencil soon. But yeah, I just did things like, you know, like, cool-looking swords and, like, people, res- like, you know, like, this character kind of responding with shock and awkwardness and things like that. And So the thing about Christine's art style, and if you've ever been to a conference with Christine, you probably know this. When Christine is, uh, ha- is like, looking for something to do with her hands and is unoccupied, she will just take out index cards and just draw tiny little drawings. And she's, like incapable of drawing anything larger than like two inches by two inches so she always just draws little tiny uh little tiny drawings that are about two inches by two inches so she just started drawing these same tiny little drawings in grease pencil and then animating them mm-hmm. and i love grease pencil it, it's like the perfect 2d software for me because it feels like a raster you know pixel-based drawing program but you're actually getting a vector-based system and you can, you know, mess with it, move things around and everything after the fact. And it's just so lovely. And, um, you know, you can turn on all these other effects and everything. And then kind of the biggest thing I've done, and I'm probably going to do another episode about this specifically, but I did my first kind of like not crowdfunding campaign animated short film recently um uh in unexpected places with the music by vivian langdon um and we'll talk about that more in a future episode so i'm just going to skip past that Mm -hmm. but it's been it's been so nice coming back to blender and the part of the reason why it's so nice is that um i really missed blender's community like i went to a couple of the blender conferences um, and, and actually just recently I was just on a trip to Fosdem and, um, I got to meet Francesco City again, who is like one of the main people over at the Blender Institute, um, and so on and so forth. And, uh, um, it was just really nice to reconnect there. Um, I have this strong affinity for Blender's community and, um, and, I'm just, I don't know, I'm, I'm just waxing poetic over here, but it's so nice to use a piece of software that really feels like it's there to be able to just empower you to do whatever you, you feel like you want to do. It's a toolkit. It's a, it's a tool to make tools. Yeah. And then uh, you kind of steamrolled over me interviewing you and just like went down this entire list without letting me interview you. Except for the last one. The other thing you've used Grease Pencil for recently was a much more mundane thing, right? You've been using it to do, like, diagrams and uh, create visual aids for work, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I've been using it for work. Um, uh, yeah, one of the things that I've been doing is making various diagrams, explaining kind of like our... Um, capability architecture um, for Sprightly, and I've been animating those and doing them kind of like whiteboard-style animations, but, like, make it look like somebody drew it on that whiteboard, but it's actually animated. 
Um, and just at, recently at FOSDEM, I was talking to the Geeks community about how we're hoping to combine Sprightly's tech and, and Geeks's tech. And I had these little hand-drawn animations that kind of showed visually how these things might connect together. And it seemed like people really connected to that. Um, so, and, and also, just for funsies, I did a 3D version of the Sprightly Institute logo, the flask with like the little 3D um like the network inside of it and stuff like that and that was Mm -hmm. a lot of fun but yeah i actually i think that um blender is an incredible visualization tool especially now that has um grease pencil it's really good for being able to visualize and animate uh complicated visual uh, complicated technical subjects even in a visual way yeah so uh now you don't work for blender uh we're not getting paid by Blender, uh, so we don't really have any bearing on this. But what are your hopes for the future for Blender? Yeah, don't work at Blender, you know, part of the community, but very off to the side part of the community, right? But uh, um, I'm really excited, number one, about Grease Pencil version 3. I think it's going to really open the door, make Blender's really cool tech for 2D animation lay a foundation for even more powerful things um there's so many cool things happening right now in blender all these pieces of tech that are being developed there's like if you look at the roadmap it's incredible um and so i think for most people they're still the largest amount of blender's audience is very focused on the 3d artwork and there's been a lot of enthusiasm about geometry nodes and the way that you can kind of do procedural uh, and like animation and modeling and stuff like that using it. And I think Blender is becoming more of an interactive tool to make tools recently, like even more than it already was. And what's kind of interesting about that is that the node-based tools that are ha- are handed to artists is a programming language. It's a visual programming language that many artists don't even realize that they're doing computer programming. And that's pretty exciting in some ways. And And you see lots of artists making really cool tools that way. And I think we'll see more of that. Um, I, I I hope that Blender is going to continue to get more interactive. The funny thing is, is that even though the game engine was removed, and like it wasn't really that good, so like it's maybe for the best that it was removed. Like it had some cool ideas, but like Blender is kind of getting more interactive. Like I think I saw something in one of their blog posts where they're saying, you know, this could be a great tool for like people doing like live visualizations at like you know like for djs and stuff like that and i Mm -hmm. think that's true yeah but i also think um here's a weird thing that i really hope for the future maybe maybe i definitely don't have the time to work on this um like morgan's making a, a tiny nod for like you don't have the time to do work on anything new um but i would love to see a blender uh digital audio workstation it's like, you know, Blender's used for video editing. It has some audio tools. I actually think with the node system and some of the other things, Blender might actually... Blender is awkwardly probably the best video editor in free and open source software. And, like, it shouldn't be, but it kind of is. But, like, Blender might be primed to be the best audio editing software, too. And I'm saying this without anything to back myself up other than a gut sense of looking at what the toolkit provides. Mm -hmm. I would love to see somebody build a Blender DAW plugin, a Blender Digital Audio Workstation plugin. I think that'd be really interesting, especially if in the same way that you can combine 2D and 3D artwork and do something interesting, 
Imagine if you're combining making a visualization and making a soundtrack at the same time, like making a music and making the visualization for it together, and maybe even a way that they kind of feed into each other. That I think would be really cool. That would be cool. My my hopes for the future for Blender, and this is something that I've ta- talked to a couple of people about, and we've seen a couple of uh, videos that are edging along this or making progress towards this, but uh, as you know, if you've listened to the podcast, I like to make things. Uh, including sewing, and um, we've talked about the idea of, like, taking clothing on a 3D model and then using that 3D model to kind of, like, unwrap that clothing and flatten it and then add a seam allowance so that you can make a sewing pattern based off of a 3D model or a 3D model based off of a sewing pattern. Or, or a stuffed animal based off of a Or a model. stuffed animal based off of a 3D model. So a pattern for a stuffed animal based off of a 3D model. And, and actually we watched that video together that used Blender's UV unwrapping stuff. Like there's a plugin yeah. that does exactly this thing. Yeah, so we've watched a couple of videos that are doing like very similar things. And the stuffed animal is very... It, they're a lot closer to doing that. Clothing is a little bit harder because... A lot of times when people are modeling clothing in the 3D world, uh, in, uh, like, you know, 3D animation or whatever, they're not paying attention to things like where seams would be placed or how, like, you know, fabric would actually stretch or not stretch. Um, so, like, getting it so that you could actually get it to lay flat into a pattern um, would take a little bit more finagling. Is this is this a is this a Foss and Crafts joint project between you and me, twenty twenty four maybe twenty twenty five if if this turns out to be too ambitious? I think we could do this in twenty twenty four. Maybe this is not a promise, audience. <laughs> is uh, um, it would be fun to try to make either some sort of clothing pattern, but even more so, a free culture. Um, stuffed animal, stuffed pattern. animal pattern using Blender to be able to develop the design, and I could maybe yeah. I could sketch and maybe create the the model, and then you could, and, and then, then I could make it like make the tweaks so that it was a functional sewing pattern. That would be that would fun be a fun heck. collaboration. That, yeah. Oh my god! And then we could put and the, that would be a free software pattern. Yeah, I can have the free software tag sticking off the edge of it yep. for the ones that you make. Oh my gosh, that would be really okay, fun. guys. We don't have a lot of free time, but if we can find the time. <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice? It would be. be It would be fun. Okay, so with that very ambitious goal for 2024. uh... Well, yeah. Are we at the wrap-up? I think we're at the wrap-up, yeah. Then I just want to say, Blender developers, we love you. Blender artists, we love you. We're... I I know I'm a big fangirl of all the Blender things, but like... um, it's so cool to see a piece of software that has evolved so much like this. It's free and open source software. And again, the the interplay between free and open source software and free culture at Blender is something that like I've it's I can't I can't I cannot think of another example where you have free software and free culture working so seamlessly together like that. Ooh, and before we wrap up this episode. Strongly recommend all of our audience watches Wing It. Oh yes, which is the the latest Blender Open Movie short about. Is it still the, the latest? It's still the latest okay. at the moment of the um 
um hopefully this is edited and out while it's still the latest uh the uh of this cat and dog which is kind of a metaphor for the cat being the developers and the dog being the artists like in blenderland and then there's a whole set of production log videos that talks about um that walks through like the process of that film being made and then it turns out there were two different i talked to francesco at, at fosdem about this it turns out there's two different directors handling these different series the production logs one is done by one um filmmaker and then there's a different filmmaker who's doing the blunder heads ones and both of these videos are so fun to watch morgan and i like this would like we watch videos sometimes during lunch together um and uh like you know on like our you know yeah you're just eating lunch you might as well watch either music videos or you know maybe tutorials and um they're so much fun and also, it's just a really funny take on the, um, I guess, the artist and the developer working side by side. Yeah. Um, but more importantly, got to wrap up on the, you know, like, uh, thank you, Blender, in all of its different facets, um, both as software. Can you thank software? I don't know. You and can thank developers for making software. The developers, the people doing the organization, and also the many artists in the community that have made um a piece of software that is maybe i mean people on here probably think emacs is my favorite software but actually probably blender is my favorite software it just only has one mistake it's scripting language is not a list <laughs> somebody needs to fix that anyway uh that's it that's it for this episode thank you everybody thanks bye Foss and Crafts is released under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. It's hosted by Morgan Lemmerweber and Christine Lemmerweber. The intro music is composed by Christine Lemmerweber, meaning myself, in Milky Tracker, and is released under the same license as the show. The outro music is Enchanted Tiki 86, composed by Alex Smith of The Cynic Project, and is waved into the public domain under CC0 1.0. See cynicmusic.com for more information. You can get in contact with us on the Fediverse, Foss and Crafts at octodon.social, on Twitter as at Foss and Crafts, or you can email us podcast at fossandcrafts.org. We also have a chat room. Join our community on hash Foss and Crafts on irc.libera.chat. If you'd like to support the show, you can donate at patreon.com forward slash foss and crafts. That's it for this week. Until next time, stay free. And stay crafty. That's right. Um... Ugh, gross. <laughs> Disgusting. A, sorry for being a steamroller. B, sorry for those horrible noises that just came out of my no- mouth. C, I'll answer your question after taking another sip of tea. There's no more tea left. Oh no! Seltzer, there's seltzer. <laughs>